Chapter 9. Politics for the Sane Man. Let us restate the general conclusions to which our preceding argument has brought us. The establishment of a progressive world socialism in which the freedoms, health and happiness of every individual are protected by a universal law based on a redeclaration of the rights of man, and wherein there is the utmost liberty of thought, criticism and suggestion, is the plain, rational objective before us now. Only the effective realization of this objective can establish peace on earth and arrest the present march of human affairs to misery and destruction. We cannot reiterate this objective too clearly and too frequently. The triangle of collectivization, law and knowledge should embody the common purpose of all mankind. But between us and that goal intervenes the vast and deepening disorders of our time. The new order cannot be brought into existence without a gigantic and more or less coordinated effort of the saner and abler elements in the human population. The thing cannot be done rapidly and melodramatically. That effort must supply the frame for all sane social and political activities and a practical criterion for all religious and educational associations. But since our world is multitudinously varied and confused, it is impossible to narrow down this new revolutionary movement to any single class, organization or party. It is too great a thing for that. It will in its expansion produce and perhaps discard a number of organizations and parties, converging upon its ultimate objective. Consequently, in order to review the social and political activities of sane, clear-headed people today, we have to deal with them piecemeal from a number of points of view. We have to consider an advance upon a long and various front. Let us begin then with the problem of sanity in face of the political methods of our time. What are we to do as voting citizens? There I think the history of the so-called democracies in the past half-century is fairly conclusive. Our present electoral methods which give no choice but a bilateral choice to the citizen and so force a two-party system upon him, is a mere caricature of representative government. It has produced upon both sides of the Atlantic, big, stupid, and corrupt party machines. That was bound to happen and yet to this day there is a sort of shyness in the minds of young men interested in politics when it comes to discussing proportional representation. They think it is a bit faddy. At best it is a side issue. Party politicians strive to maintain that bashfulness, because they know quite clearly that what is called proportional representation with the single transferable vote in large constituencies, returning a dozen members or more, is extinction for the mere party hack and destruction for party organizations. The machine system in the United States is more elaborate, more deeply entrenched legally in the constitution and illegally in the spoils system, and it may prove more difficult to modernize than the British, which is based on an outworn caste tradition but both Parliament and Congress are essentially similar in their fundamental quality. They trade in titles, concessions and the public welfare, and they are only amenable in the rough and at long last to the movements of public opinion. It is an open question whether they are much more responsive to popular feeling than the dictators we denounce so unreservedly as the antithesis of democracy. They betray a great disregard of mass responses. They explain less. They disregard more. The dictators have to go on talking and talking, not always truthfully but they have to talk. A dumb dictator is inconceivable. In such times of extensive stress and crisis as the present, the baffling slowness, inefficiency and wastefulness of the party system become so manifest that some of its worst pretenses are put aside. The party game is suspended. His Majesty's opposition abandons the pose of safeguarding the interests of the common citizens from those scoundrels upon the government benches, Republican and Democrats begin to cross the party line to discuss the new situation. 
even the men who live professionally by the parliamentary, congressional, imposture, abandon it if they are sufficiently frightened by the posture of affairs. The appearance of an all-party national government in Great Britain before very long seems inevitable. Great Britain has in effect gone socialist in a couple of months, she is also suspending party politics. Just as the United States did in the Great Slump. And in both cases this has happened because the rottenness and inefficiency of party politics stank to heaven in the face of danger. And since in both cases party government threw up its hands and bolted, is there any conceivable reason why we should let it come back at any appearance of victory or recovery, why we should not go ahead from where we are to a less impromptu socialist regime under a permanent non-party administration, to the reality if not to the form of a permanent socialist government? Now here I have nothing to suggest about America. I have never, for example, tried to work out the consequences of the absence of executive ministers from the legislature. I am inclined to think that is one of the weak points in the Constitution and that the English usage which exposes the minister to question time in the House and makes him a prime mover in legislation affecting his department is a less complicated and therefore more democratic arrangement than the American one. And the powers and functions of the President and the Senate are so different from the consolidated powers of Cabinet and Prime Minister that even when an Englishman has industriously mugged up the constitutional points, he is still almost as much at a loss to get the living reality as he would be if he were shown the score of an opera before hearing it played or the blueprints of a machine he had never seen in action. Very few Europeans understand the history of Woodrow Wilson, the Senate and his League of Nations. They think that America, which they imagine as a large single individual, planted the latter institution upon Europe and then deliberately shuffled out of her responsibility for it, and they will never think otherwise. And they think that America, kept out of the war to the very limit of decency, overcharged us for munitions that contributed to the common victory, and made a grievance because the consequent debt was not discharged. They talk like that while Americans talk as if no English were killed between 1914 and 1918, we had 800,000 dead, until the noble American conscripts came forward to die for them, to the tune of about 50,000. Savor for example even the title of Quincy House England expects every American to do his duty. It's the meanest of titles, but many Americans seem to like it. On my desk as I write is a pamphlet by a Mr. Robert Randall, nicely cyclostyled and got up which urges a common attack on the United States as a solution of the problem of Europe. No countries will ever feel united unless they have a common enemy, and the natural common enemy for Europe, it is declared, is the United States. So to bring about the United States of Europe we are to begin by denouncing the Monroe Doctrine. I believe in the honesty and good intentions of Mr. Robert Randall, he is, I am sure, no more in the pay of Germany, direct or indirect, than Mr. Quincy Howe or Mr. Harry Elmer Barnes, but could the most brilliant of Nazi war propagandists devise a more effective estranging suggestion? But I wander from my topic. I do not know how sane men in America are going to set about relaxing the stranglehold of the Constitution, get control of their own country out of the hands of those lumpish, solemnly cunning politicians with their great strong jowls developed by chewing gum and orotund speaking, whose photographs add a real element of frightfulness to the pages of time, how they are going to abolish the spoils system, discover, and educate to expand a competent civil service able to redeem the hampered. Promises of the New Deal and pull America into line with the reconstruction of the rest of the world. But I perceive that in politics and indeed in most things, the underlying humor and sanity of Americans are apt to find a way round and do the impossible, and I have as little doubt they will manage it somehow as I have when I see a street performer on his little chair and carpet, all tied up with chains, waiting until there are sufficient pennies in the hat to justify exertion.
these differences in method, pace and tradition are a great misfortune to the whole English-speaking world. We English people do not respect Americans enough, we are too disposed to think they are all Quincy Howes and Harry Elmer Barneses and Borers and such like, conceited and suspicious anti-British monomaniacs, who must be humoured at any cost, which is why we are never so frank and rude with them as they deserve. But the more we must contain ourselves the less we love them. Real brothers can curse each other and keep friends. Someday Britannia will give Columbia a piece of her mind, and that may clear the air. Said an exasperated Englishman to me a day or so ago, I pray to God they keep out of the end of this war anyhow. We shall never hear the last of it if they don't. Yet at a different pace our two people are travelling towards identical ends, and it is lamentable that a difference of accent and idiom should do more mischief than a difference of language. So far as Great Britain goes things are nearer and closer to me, and it seems to me that there is an excellent opportunity now to catch the country in a state of socialization and suspend party politics, and keep it at that. It is a logical but often disregarded corollary of the virtual creation of all party national governments and suspension of electoral contests, that since there is no opposition, party criticism should give place to individual criticism of ministers, and instead of throwing out governments we should set ourselves to throw out individual administrative failures. We need no longer confine our choice of public servants to political careerists. We can insist upon men who have done things and can do things, and whenever an election occurs we can organise a block of non-party voters who will vote it possible for an outsider of provability, and will at any rate insist on a clear statement from every parliamentary candidate of the concrete service, if any, he has done the country, of his past and present financial entanglements and his family relationships and of any title he possesses. We can get these necessary particulars published and note what newspapers decline to do so. And if there are still only politicians to vote for, we can at least vote and spoil our voting cards by way of protest. At present we see one public service after another in a mess through the incompetent handling of some party hack and the unseen activities of interested parties. People are asking already why Sir Arthur Salter is not in control of Allied shipping again, Sir John or directing our food supply with perhaps Sir Frederick Keeble to help him, Sir Robert Vanzetart in the Foreign Office. We want to know the individuals responsible for the incapacity of our intelligence and propaganda ministries, so that we may induce them to quit public life. It would be quite easy now to excite a number of anxious people with a cry for, competence not party. Most people in the British Isles are heartily sick of Mr Chamberlain and his government, but they cannot face up to a political split in wartime, and Mr Chamberlain sticks to office with all the pertinacity of a barnacle. But if we do not attack the government as a whole, but individual ministers, and if we replace them one by one, we shall presently have a government so rejuvenated that even Mr. Chamberlain will realize and accept his superannuation. Quite a small body of public spirited people could organize an active vigilant society to keep these ideas before the mass of voters and begin the elimination of inferior elements from our public life. This would be a practical job of primary importance in our political regeneration. It would lead directly to a new and more efficient political structure to carry on after the present war has collapsed or otherwise ended. Following upon this campaign for the conclusive interment of the played-out party system, there comes the necessity for a much more strenuous search for administrative and technical ability throughout the country. We do not want to miss a single youngster who can be of use in the great business of making over Great Britain, which has been so rudely, clumsily and wastefully socialised by our war perturbations, so that it may become a permanently efficient system. 
and from the base of the educational pyramid up to its apex of higher education of teachers, heads of departments and research, there is need for such a quickening of minds and methods as only a more or less organized movement of sanely critical men can bring about. We want ministers now of the highest quality in every department, but in no department of public life is a man of creative understanding, bold initiative and administrative power so necessary as in the education ministry. So tranquil and unobtrusive has been the flow of educational affairs in the British Empire that it seems almost scandalous, and it is certainly vulgar, to suggest that we need an educational ginger group to discover and support such a minister. We want a minister of education who can shock teachers into self-examination, electrify and rejuvenate old dons or put them away in ivory towers, and stimulate the younger ones. Under the party system the education ministry has always been a restful corner for some deserving party politician with an abject respect for his alma mater and the permanent officials. During wartime, when other departments wake up, the education department sinks into deeper lethargy. One cannot recall a single British education minister, since there have been such things in our island story as ministers for education, who signified anything at all educationally or did anything of his own impulse that was in the least worthwhile. Suppose we found a live one soon and let him rip. There again is something to be done far more revolutionary than throwing bombs at innocent policemen or assassinating harmless potentates or ex-potentates. And yet it is only asking that an existing department be what it pretends to be. A third direction in which any gathering accumulation of sanity should direct its attention is the clumsy unfairness and indirectness of our present methods of expropriating the former well-to-do classes. The only observable principle seems to be widows and children first. Socialization is being affected in Britain and America alike not by frank expropriation, with or without compensation, but by increasing government control and increasing taxation. Both our great communities are going into socialism backward and without ever looking round. This is good in so far as that technical experience and directive ability is changed over step by step from entirely private employment to public service, and on that side sane and helpful citizens have little to do beyond making the process conscious of itself and the public aware of the real nature of the change, but it is bad in its indiscriminate destruction of savings, which are the most exposed and vulnerable side of the old system. They are expropriated by profit control and taxation alike, and at the same time they suffer in purchasing power by the acceleration of that process of monetary inflation which is the unavoidable readjustment, the petition in bankruptcy, of a community that has overspent. The shareholding class dwindles and dies, widows and orphans, the old who are past work and the infirm who are incapable of it, are exposed in their declining years to a painful shrinkage of their modes of living, there is no doubt a diminution of social waste, but also there is an indirect impoverishment of free opinion and free scientific and artistic initiative as the endless societies, institutions and services which have enriched life for us and been very largely supported by voluntary subscriptions, shrivel present a large proportion of our scientific, artistic, literary and social workers are educated out of the private savings fund. In a class war revolution these economically very defenseless but socially very convenient people are subjected to vindictive humiliation, it is viewed as a great triumph for their meaner neighbours but a revolution sanely conducted will probably devise a system of terminable annuities and compensation, and of assistance to once voluntary associations which will ease off the social dislocations due to the disappearance of one stratum of relatively free and independent people, before its successors, that is to say the growing class of retired officials, public administrators and so forth, find their feet and develop their own methods of assertion and enterprise.